are here with Right Here, Right Now. I'm Eleanor. And I'm Kate. Before we get started on our last show for tonight, uh, our last show for the season that is tonight, we would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the owners of the land on which the House of Sin and Studio stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Yes, and we would also like to remind everyone that we are reading Creative Works tonight, and some of the themes covered might not be for everyone, so if sensitive or little ears are tuned in, we recommend you switch stations. We also just wanted to advise listeners that we'll be discussing themes of mental health tonight and remind everyone that October is the official Mental Health Awareness Month in Australia. If you have any triggers or need any support regarding mental health topics, then you can go to um, Beyond the Blue. You can call them at 13 um, 4636. Um, you can call Lifeline at... 13, 11, 14, or in an emergency, triple zero. Thank you, Kate. Now, we've got such a great show for you tonight. We're going to be reading some submissions we've had this week. We've got an interview that Kate did earlier in the week with a great submitter of ours, Jenny, and we've also got some throwbacks to play for you from earlier shows. Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. It's a bit of a trip down memory lane um, tonight with some... Just some of the classics, some of our favourite submissions and, yeah, we're just really happy to be sharing them with you tonight. Yeah, exactly. To kick it off, we're going to actually, I'm going to play uh, a piece I read out earlier this season, which was a submission from Harriet Donegan and it was from our 3rd of September show. This was a piece called 210 and Back Again. 2.10 and back again. You are up to 10 second shower number, not yet 10. You tap, 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 the tap, tap, the tap. I said tap that tap 10 taps. Tap yourself clean, boy. 2 tap, 5 tap, 10 tap clean. I said 10 tap clean. Is it? Must be. 10, 10 a.m. Feet facing south window. Mmm. You deplete Mr. Dove deodorant can. You tap, tap, Mr. Mobile. You tap, tap, corner to bench. Benchy bench top, tattered bench top, tap. Poor Mr. Mobile and Mr. Bench top. You tap, tap, quick, quick. You count, count, quicker, quicker. Two tap, quick, four, tap, quick, six, tap, quick, eight, tap, quick, quick, tap, ten, tap, try, not to stare. I said try, not to stare. You plug in, plug out, plug in, plug out. Out plug, in plug, out plug. I think stay the fuck out plug. You out plug, in plug again, again, and your lips race from one plug to ten plug. We have tiles of squares, tiles of squares, tiles of squares. You put down, pick up, put down, pick up, down or up, put, fucking pick. You pick to put down the jocks. A neat spread on tile number ten. Once I moved them, you move them back again. Our kitchen's entry is different to its exit. You go in entry, out exit, in out, out in. You lap one time, two time, five times, ten time. Beep, 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 beep. Microwaves have buttons, immutable bloody buttons. When we hear ten beeps ten times every one lap, two lap, ten lap, we get angry, very angry. Next to the microwave are corners, one, two, three, four. You have ten fingers for one, two, three, four corners. Top, bottom, bottom, top. Inside the one, two, three, four. Corners is a window. I stare at you. You stare through. Looks like you see something, a sum of things, some other thing, something we can't. Alas, your lips race, race. Again, again, from one to some something that equals ten. That was me, Eleanor, reading a piece back on September 3rd, a piece called 210 and Back Again by Harriet Donegan. 
Definitely one of our favourites, that one. <laughs> I just I just love the way it just sounds, you know, when you hear it. Tap, 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 tap. Yeah, you know she's <laughs> writing about an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have next for us, Kate? Up next is another um, previous submission by Claire Harris, and it's titled Crooked. Take it away. The very worst thing about Grace's life was her crooked teeth. Running a close second was sharing a room with her older sister, Sarah, who always hogged the fan in summer and pointed it down towards the lower bunk so it only blew air on her and not Grace in the top bunk. Sarah said she was entitled to colder air because she was seven years older than Grace and in the second last year of school. Grace would have rather shared a room with just about any of her other siblings other than Sarah. But the youngest three girls were all in a room together and it had been decided that in the new house it was better that the two boys would share. The third worst thing in Grace's life was her name, Grace. Not that there was anything she minded about it. Grace was her favourite princess and she had a feeling it was better to be named after a princess than a saint. The problem was that in the first week of fourth grade, they had been learning about the syllables in grammar, and Mrs White had made the class clap out the number of syllables in everyone's name. Grace was the only one who had to endure the unbearable shame of a single clap. She felt a flush rise to her cheeks as the Cecilias and the Carolines and the Stephanies and the others of three or four syllable names looked on smugly. Only her two-syllabled classmate, Carla, piped up with her. No, miss... It's grace, as she drew out an elongated vowel sound and she clapped twice in quick succession. But Miss White was no stranger to these claims and was quick to nip them in the bud, pumping her palms together in the loud howl of a clap. Grace, she pronounced, and a small twitter of giggles erupted from the side of the circle. Miss White turned about her sharply, arching her left eyebrow and an instant hush fell over grade four. Miss White clapped once more. Grace wanted to point out that Mrs White's name only had one syllable, but the teacher cheated and strung Miss and the White together and made the class clap twice as though it was a single word. Miss White. This seemed to be a terribly unfair advantage of being the teacher, the ability to just mix things up the way you wanted them to be. It went to show that you could never trust adults. And that was the first page in the story Crooked by Claire Harris, um, which was previously submitted to us. I really like that piece. It's really uh, speaks a lot to being a really young person and feeling a bit powerless in <laughs> yeah. school. <laughs> the unjustness of the world and, you know, the small things seem so big. Exactly. Um, wonderful. Thank you for that, Kate. Now we're going to head to our the first part of Kate's interview earlier this week that she had with Jenny Hickenbotham, who we met because she submitted a great piece of writing to us yeah. and we reached out and thought we'd love to have a chat with her. Isn't that right? That's exactly right, Eleanor. Um, and Jenny Hickenbotham is actually, she's an Australian artist, writer and mental health advocate. And um, she writes about her um, lived experience of mental health challenges. Yeah, and you two had such a great conversation and such a nice lengthy conversation (laughs) this week. Yes, indeed. Unfortunately, we can't share all of it, but here is uh, the first part of Kate's great interview with Jenny. All right, I'll start, start off the interview. You were talking about how you know, writing and the arts in general can really help people struggling with mental health issues and mental illnesses. Mm. Have Mm. you seen a lot of that throughout your life? I have seen some activities of support services like MIND and um, co-health providing art sessions for people like regularly once a week and so on. Is that an art therapy? I found that really, really, really excellent. Um in that it, it helps you to engage with your emotions through your ex- expressing yourself. And she provided various materials, like I could have wrote, could write or draw or paint, you know. So I think that was a very valuable. It has been shown that creative outlets, whether, you know, art, writing, um, singing, writing music, mm-hmm. um, are all very, very helpful for people who are struggling with 
with their mental health. And how would you say writing has helped you, like, support you in your recovery? Oh, it's helped me a lot. My recovery has been... The main support I've had has been with a psychiatrist I met um, about 15 years ago, and she she and I worked really well together for 15 years. It's, that's really that's a long stopped. time. That's good. She, she's become unwell now, so I'm, oh. I'm having to move on. But um, with her, I did what's called cognitive behaviour therapy, so she got me to write, um, and every day I would sit down and I'd write... Um, what was it? Oh, so my, my diagnosis is schizophrenia, which means I have some voice hearing or hallucinatory experiences that other people don't have. Um, yeah, and um, anyway, so I would write down if I'd heard a voice and what it said, and then in the next column I would write what it made me, what I felt, you know, angry, frustrated. <laughs> With me... Um, I certainly, I, I write a lot, and as I said, you know, I, I can sit down every night, it, really I could, and, and yeah. write. I love to write, and I love to try and express my life experience and my thoughts and mm. my, my feelings and my relationships <laughs> in words, you know. Just, yeah. Just to me, it just... Get it down on the page. Beautiful, yeah. I love to, I just love words and how <laughs> they work together, and I love thinking of different words, unusual, yeah. or, you know, and putting words together. and It's almost romantic, and, isn't you know, it? Yeah. All those things. I just love <laughs> playing with words. I don't know. But I love patterns as well. Yeah. And I tend to dream a lot in patterns, like um, building um, things, patterny things in, in my dreams. So, I don't know, maybe words like that Okay, and that was um, my interview that I had earlier in the week with Jenny Hickenbotham. And um, again, yeah, she's an Australian artist, writer and mental health advocate. And that was only part one of the interview. But yeah, we had a very long chat. And um, so we're going to try and fit as much as we can of it into our show tonight. Yes, we are. Uh, next up, we're going to hear from one of the other presenters from Right Here, Right Now Radio, Ellie. This is her reading a piece by Gig Ryan, If I Had a Gun, and we aired this at our second show of Right Here, Right Now. So here's Ellie reading Gig Ryan's If I Had a Gun. I'd shoot the man who whistled from his balcony. I'd shoot the man with things dangling over his creepy chest in the park where I was contemplating the universe. I'd shoot the man who can't look me in the eye, who stares at my boobs when we're talking, who rips me off in the milk bar and smiles his wet purple smile, who comments on my clothes. I'm not a fucking painting that needs to be told what it looks like. Who tells me where to put my hands, who wrenches me into position like a mechano set, who drags you round like a war. I'd shoot the man who couldn't live without me. I'd shoot the man who thinks it's his turn to be pretty. Flashing his skin passively like something I've got to step into. The man who says, John's a chemistry PhD and an ace cricketer. Jane's got rotten legs. Who thinks I'm wearing perfume for him. Who says, baby, you can really drive like it's so complicated male, his fucking highway, who says, ah, but you're like that, and pats you on the head, who kisses you at the party because everybody does it, who shoves it up like a nail. I'd shoot the man who can't look after himself, who comes to me for wisdom, who's witty with his mates about heavy things that wouldn't interest you. Who keeps a little time to be human and tells me, female, his ridiculous private thoughts. Who sits up in his moderate bed and says, was that good? Like a menu. Who hangs on to you sloppy and thick as a carpet. I'd shoot the man last night who said, smile honey, don't look so glum. With money swearing from his jacket and a three course meal he prods lazily. Who tells me his problems, his girlfriend, his mother, his wife, his daughter, his sister, 
his lover. Because women will listen to that sort of rubbish. Women are full of compassion and have soft, soggy hearts you can throw up in and no one will notice, and they won't complain. I'd shoot the man who thinks he can look like an excavation site, but you can't. Who thinks what you look like's for him. To appraise, to sit back, to talk his intelligent way. I've got eyes in my fucking head. Who thinks if he's smart, he'll get in it? I'd shoot the man who said, Andrew's dedicated and works hard. Julia's ruthlessly ambitious. Who says, I'll introduce you to the ones who know, with their inert, alcoholic eyes. That'll get by, sad, savage and civilised. Who say, can, like there's a law against it. I'd shoot the man who goes stupid, in his puny, abstract, how could I refuse she needed me, taking her tatty head in his neutral arms like a pope. I'd shoot the man who pulled up at the lights, who rolled his face articulate as an asylum, and revved up the engine, who says, you're paranoid, with his educated, born-to-it calm, who's standing there, wasted as a rifle and explains the world to me. I'd shoot the man who says, relax honey, come and kiss my my Valium mouth blue. That was our co-host here, right here, right now, Radio Ellie, reading out Gig Ryan's If I Had a Gun, and we aired that piece on our second show earlier this season such a powerful piece and so well read by our Ellie. Just really was. It gave me just chills, even even for a second time hearing it. It just, it's like a brush of fresh air. It's all the things I wish I could say, you know, yeah. sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Lucky you can just play this recording. Yeah, exactly. You don't even need to open your mouth. You just press that button. <laughs> exactly. Oh. And up next now, what do we what have we got here? We're gonna listen to the second part of your intro with Jenny, and your interview with <laughs> Jenny. Excuse me. Uh, so please enjoy this second part of Kate's interview with Jenny, recorded earlier this week. Do you think that your um, mental health um, path, kind yeah. of life journey, mm-hmm. um, has given you a different perspective on writing has it shaped your oh well absolutely because it's given me a subject and yeah and in some ways that subject limits me so so I sometimes feel that you know okay I send my poems off to competitions or and my short stories and my essays (laughs) and I tend to not get very far I sort of haven't won any competitions or you know even been highly committed or anything but and I Mm. tend to um, look, I could be wrong again, but and maybe, you know, it's a bit personal, but I tend to th- often think it's my subject, which is mental health, and okay. that, um, you know, I, I write... It's a bit too uh, raw for some people, maybe. Yes, and so, <laughs> look, mental health does frighten people a bit. Yeah. Because, we, you know, a lot a lot of people... I mean, I've lived with it day in, day out, so mm. it's my identity, really, but mm. a lot of people don't know a lot about mental health, apart from what they hear on the news or... Uh, on, yeah. on on movies and those things that you see on social media are really just dramatizing what it really what mental health really is in our society because you know one in four people has an experience of mental health and half of the half of the population of Australia will have a mental health experience in mm. their lifetime so you know we all have to sort of and we should be talking to kids and we should be talking openly about these things. But anyway, yeah. back to my writing. So <laughs> um, I find that I, I, maybe it's my subject that, um, that I don't... That, that, because I think having been writing for 30 years, surely my style is not too bad. Like, you know, yeah. I mean... Um, well, we've, we've read some of your writing here on or right here, yes. right yeah. now. And it's, yeah. um, it's lovely writing. It's yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So do you find that there are some things that are harder for you to write about or are there things that you can't write about at all? Uh, well, this is 
the way I am. I challenge myself like that, you know, like, yeah. you know. Um, so, so the things that are h hardest for me to think about are what happened to me as a child. Writing some of those things is hard, but I try yeah. and do it anyway. You know, yeah. I try and, and put it down on paper because to me that makes it real. Mm. And, that, and that's a, a very valid thing, I think, a lot of the time in mental illness is feeling like it's not real it's not um it's not a tangible illness it's not something that you can see Absolutely. as clearly so yeah. I think that kind of validation that writing gives you is very important it's very yeah I think it, it is it is yeah and and reading other people's writing is also yeah is exactly also yeah and that's why I think it's so great that, you know, we're having this conversation here about mental health and yeah. mental illnesses. It's very important. Um, and what about um, some advice for people at the start of their writing journeys? The thing I have really um, learnt uh, later in life is you can't really make mistakes, you know. Yeah. Don't, don't <laughs> worry if it's not going to be perfect the first time. Get in and have a go. And and um, just you know, write what takes your fancy, and and anything goes. Like you know, don't let your mum say, to you, "Oh, that's no, you can't talk like that." You know, just write what you want to write. And uh, I know young people don't let their mum, but I let my mum. Or, or society puts constraints on us. You know, yeah. just just you know, go write, wild. What, write, yeah, go wild. What interests you? What what your passion and your love is, go for it. And that's a great and piece just, of advice. Just yeah. write it out, and then look at it tomorrow, and then again the next day, and then you know it 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 becomes more stronger and more meaningful for you as you you work through it over time. That's know. lovely. Yeah, mm. great. Thank you so much for coming in and chatting with me. Oh, today. it's great. It's I loved lovely. your questions. Now, that was the second half of Kate's interview earlier this week with Jenny Hickenbotham, a submitter here at Right Here Radio. But next up, we're going to hear Jenny reading out some of her own work. So stay tuned. Here's Jenny reading two of her poems. So um, this poem is called No Colour. I'm neutral, colourless, bland, unexciting, I live without highs, without lows, without brights and darks. I live, I am, but I'm neutral. The mirror lies, those colours she sees are only surface deep. Nothing exciting happens within. No joy, no love, no passion, nothing sad, nothing tearful. It's all pretty neutral, mirror, so stop it. Stop showing me those colourful images. Stop pretending. Stop lying. We know it's not true. Nothing's true. The camera lied. She caught you posing. Deep blue sea. Warm waves behind. Posing brightly in hot pink. But no smile. No crack upon your lips. No crinkle at your eyes corners. No laugh, no colour. Okay, this one's called Risking... Okay, okay. Risking it all. Some cards weren't sent when you were born into sisterhood. You must try to be dumber than the boys, she insisted. It's not that you can't. You can't take isolation, be an island. Support, care, belief, that will make you someone. He said, either you do or you won't. He's over psychotherapy, he declared, laughed. And that was Jenny reading her poems um, for us here at Right Here, Right Now Radio. Um, such beautiful poems and we just like to say thank you to Jenny for having a chat with us um, and let everyone know that Jenny will be at the Walk a Mile in My Shoes Mental Health Advocacy Day in the Commonwealth Reserve Williamstown on the 14th of October 9am to noonish um, and if anyone wants to join in and have a chat with Jenny they're welcome to do so. 
Yes, thank you so much, Jenny, for both your submission and then for having a chat with us this week. Next up, we have another submission. This one is from Elise Lloyd, and it's a piece called Letter Bound. Luce, Luci, Lucia. The years came to me the way they do for most people. A gushing tide of ideas and strength with lulls in between long enough to savour the crisp sweetness of life but they sped up even more when I received news of you. Your father and I had talked about it, but we were still young, only eight months ago, and we still are now. You, though, are the youngest of all, the one most dear to my heart. My father is my life, but you, sweetness, you are my soul, the life inside of me growing each day, the life destined to kill me. Your father and I met in a whirlwind of confusion and pain, which seems to be about the only way my life would go. It was six years ago, and I had recently regained the strength and rehabilitation I needed to be able to walk again without assistance, the metal rods in my spine keeping me together in more way than one, and so I left. Brisbane has always been home to me, but I was 22 and sick of it and needed to spread my wings. The streets of Paris were dirty and filled with dog shit, and still are, going by the news from your Aunt Miriam, who your father will introduce you to, and who has assured me will be there to buy you alcohol on your 18th birthday. But the apartment I lived in was nice enough, and just the right size for a single student living on cans of tuna and the smell of begonias on the windowsill. It was only the pictures of idyllic and not nearly as quaint a life as I had imagined moving to a different country for six months, halfway through my French literature degree, with no plan of returning to Brisbane any time soon. Of course, even the picture wasn't meant to last. I had always been clumsy. The morning I met your father, I had fallen down the stairs in my building and tore several ligaments in my back. Thankfully, nothing too serious for me. I was laid up in bed for only two months, so I counted myself lucky. Your father was one of the nurses in the hospital, and he helped treat me. As soon as I saw him, I knew he was going to be my husband. Not to put tickets on myself, but I've never had a problem with that, which is good news for you because you're going to have your father's looks and my charm. Your father and I hit it off like something out of the Spanish soap operas he liked to watch, not the Japanese dramas I had taken a fancy to during my stay in Paris. Maybe he'll introduce you to them one day, if they don't make him too sad thinking of me. Which, obviously, they will. He'll be crushed without me. Anyone would be. The doctors say it's only a matter of time. My body is broken in ways I cannot describe, and it's nearly impossible that I will survive the process of birthing you into the world. They seem to regard you as a ticking time bomb, a counter to the end of my days, and I guess they're right. But it will mean something, my life, to bring you into this world. If you kill me, then I will be glad to go. Not glad that I will never see you grow, that I will never see you take your first steps, that all your smiles will elude me and you will live on without me to guide you, but glad that I could give my life to you, my greatest creation. My baby, how I love you so, even though we'll never meet. Yours dearly and utterly and sincerely, your mama, mother, mummy, Whatever name will be dearest to your heart and easiest on your tongue, with all the love my defeated body can muster. Adeline. Oh, it was kind of sweet and sad, but funny too. Yeah, it was. That was Letter Bound, a submission from Elise Lloyd. And she's a Brisbane-based author who's trying to live the dream of being a professional writer and is the president of the University of Queensland's Writers Club. Her Twitter handle is at lowqualityadult, <laughs> which is a great Twitter handle. It's brilliant Twitter handle. <laughs> Thank you so much for that submission, Elise. What's up next for us, Kate? Up next, we have a um, pre-recording of our fourth co-host Lucy reading Ebb and Flow, um, a submission from Ash Fox that we aired on the 20th of August show. 
Mum made a sign to nail to our letterbox from a piece of driftwood. It had both our names etched into it in drips of blue paint. The driftwood was too small to fit our full names, so Mum shortened us to Ebb and Flo. In the early mornings, I would watch Mum stack our firewood stove full of newspaper and twigs, and we would sit in the kitchen and wait for the sun to let itself in through our window. Mum always made a big pot of tea once the stove had thawed the room out, and I would wait patiently, my eyes following the drops of water on the window running all the way to the bottom pane as the glass above the sink defrosted. We would drink our tea together with the teapot set in the middle of the table between the two of us. It was always just the two of us. On the mornings, when the weather was clear enough, we would put on our red rubber boots and he heavy woolen coats and go down to the water to try to spot the lighthouse on the far side of the bay or watch the fishermen sitting in their deck chairs on the jetty at the foot of the cliffs, drinking beer and slowly piling the cans up next to their coolers like great mounds of dirt next to a mining shaft. From the jetty we would walk into town, Mum holding my hand as we passed the shops one by one until the grimy glass door of Mr Tippett's fish and chip shop swooned above my head. Even with both my hands pressed flat against the glass, I never had enough strength to open that door. Mum often struggled to push it open too, but it always gave in against her shoulder and all of her weight. It was the only shop I ever wanted to go in, if only to let my nose and tongue feast on the fat cloud of oil and salt that hung to the air like a blanket. Every time we entered, Mr Tippett would bellow, Ah, yes, my favourite customers, Ebb and Flo, who come and go. Mum would always laugh, and I would hold on to her leg and try to act brave, even though Mr Tippett's booming voice hurt my ears. We would wait for our food to fry and then walk back past the shops and up to the jetty where the fishermen sat and chose a spot where we could be alone. Then we would eat with our legs hanging over the water, the splash of the waves washing the sand from our toes, from the toes of our red rubber boots. Watching the sun drift slowly down behind the churning blanket of ocean that lay before us, I would gaze up at Mum and squeeze her hand as we picked at the pile of chips that was nestled between the two of us. It was always just the two of us. On the days when the wind was at its wildest, we would wrap our thickest scarves up to our noses and push through the storm, marching along the gummy sand near the path that led to our back door, searching for little treasures that the, tide, the high tide might have left for us. I adored seashells, and Mum always helped me find the best ones to take home. The mantle above the stove in the kitchen was eventually swallowed up by our most prized discoveries, the ones that didn't make it to the trophy shelf became necklaces that we would tie together with fishing wire and show off to the old ladies at the general store who had holes in their pantyhose and smelled like soap and shampoo. Sometimes at low tide we would, we would find crabs on the beach and build homes for them out of sand and sticks. Mum always made me put the crabs back on the beach when she found me hiding them in my coat pockets. I always hoped that I would sneak one back home and keep it as a pet but secretly I knew that their home was on the beach just as mine was in the weather battered tortoise house with mum. The days stopped and started as I grew older. During these days mum grew quieter. She stayed in bed for days at, at a time and we even had a doctor out to the house to check on her. The doctor told mum that there wasn't anything wrong with her and left his number for us to call if she needed him. I didn't like seeing mum in bed all day with her blankets bunched up in swelling peaks and troughs. I placed her red rubber boots against the steel post of her bed and told her that the sea must have brought new treasures for us to find, but all she could do was roll over and mumble, Oh my darling Ebony, maybe tomorrow. The neighbours from the other side of the hill came over with soup in thermoses and, in short sad chuckles, told mum that there were easier ways to get out of doing the cooking. I learned how to light the stove in the kitchen with newspaper and twigs. I would boil tea for us and place it in the middle of the table. Sometimes mum would sit with me, wrapped up in a blanket that she dragged with her from the bed. She never said a word. Her glassy gaze would stay glued to the, dr the drops of water running down the window. She had sickly eyes that I didn't recognise anymore. I spent my early teenage years wondering if mum remembered that there were two of us. I felt like It felt like there was only me. The, the thought scratched my mind so viciously that it began to feel like there were no other thoughts worth thinking about. I wanted my mum back, and I wanted this quiet, miserable woman with her sickly, dead eyes to leave our tortoise house. 
One evening, as the stove fire in the kitchen was smouldering, I screamed at the pile of blankets on Mum's bed. The blankets did not speak or move. In the corner of the room sat her, sat her pair of dusty red rubber boots. I hurled them at the blankets in a rage of tears and shouted, "'Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you!' until I heard the sobbing of the quiet, miserable woman." I remember running to the kitchen to smash the seashells on the mantel until they became dusty, pearlescent cornflakes. I pulled my own tiny red rubber boots with sandy toes from underneath my bed. I ran down the steps and out to the jetty where the fishermen left their beer cans. I heaved them into the wind and the waves, shrieking and shaking with sadness and loneliness. There was no one around to see me, only the churning blanket of miserable black ocean. Eventually I left the little seaside town for the city in my heavy denim coat and red leather boots. I remember walking into town past all the shops until I reached the bus stop with the grey plastic bench seat and burned metal garbage bin that sat next door to Mr Tippett's fish and chip shop. The grimy glass door had grown grimier while I grew older and mum grew quieter. I saw Mr Tippett through the glass and he threw his hand in the air to catch my eye. I could hear him in my head, bellowing and booming out my name. I never had the, enough strength to open that door. And that was Ebb and Flow, read by our fourth co-host, Lucy, um, who was previously on the show in the first couple of the um, episodes. Yes, but then she left us to go to Europe, which is only fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know, when the world calls, you've got to answer. <laughs> exactly. So a few weeks ago, we were lucky enough to interview and have a recording from Marie Kelly, who has a recently published book, Tales of Teenage Turbulence and Other Terrible Times. And she came and read out a wonderful piece from that book with us. And it's called If Peeing My Pants Was an Olympic Sport very charming so here she is Marie Kelly reading from an excerpt from her book I've wet my pants more times than I can count I've wet my bed more than I've wet my pants it creeps up on me then bam there I am with my bladder almost bursting desperate for a loo sometimes I realize too late other times I barely make it it was always me on car trips that made mum and dad pull over because I needed to go. To help me stop bedwetting, my parents ordered a wet sensor for under my bed sheets. It was this huge rubber square that lay under my waist. It wasn't comfortable to sleep on at all. It would feel moisture, then set off an alarm waking me up. My name said wet's the bed next to it on a student list for excursions and camps. When other children found one of the lists and read it, I told them it was a mistake and should have been for my younger sister. I don't think my sister has ever wet the bed in her life. I never spoke about it with anyone. My parents were anti-sleepovers, so no one saw that alarm box or felt the rubber pad under my sheets. I moved to a new school and thought I was lucky to have a fresh start of no bed wetting and no one knowing either. No one at this school had seen any class list with my shame written on it. Then Year 5 camp came along. I woke on the very first night swimming in drenched pyjamas in a sleeping bag that absolutely reeked. I had a shower, packed away my sleeping bag and pretended it was too hot for me at night. There was nothing to be embarrassed about if no one knew. Six months had passed since that camp and I hadn't wet the bed since. I had a few close calls with wetting my pants but I felt more in control of my bladder. Tonight was year six graduation night and every year five had to attend and perform. I was going to be singing in the choir. We were currently waiting in the audience so we could swap places with the year sixes. We'd be on a stage and they'd be in the audience watching us sing for them. I was reading the program for the night when a warm tingling feeling crept down my spine. I needed to go pee. I needed to go now. My head went back to the program to see how much time I had. There was one song between this one and the one I needed to be on stage for. I turned my head around to suss out when I could move and how many people I'd disturb probably need to exit to the right. I shifted in my seat, ready to make a run for it. The song playing ended. All the year fives around me stood up. I'd read the program wrong. We were performing now. I tried to sneak away via the stage exit, but my last hope was blocked by three cellos and two headmistresses. 
My bladder was throbbing in pain. I clenched my teeth and fists and walked into position on the carpeted risers. We had two songs to sing. One was a school song. There was a part in the school song where we had to stomp. The line went, At work we study with the best, of knowledge we pursue the quest, and lazy shirkers we detest. And the entire school would stomp on the word detest. When we reached that part, I couldn't hold it in any longer. It was as if the stomp was a lever to open the gate of a dam. I was peeing. I was peeing on stage. I tried to stop it, but I couldn't. It was uncontrollable, unstoppable. It just kept going and going. I was too afraid to look down. My legs were stinging. My right sock was soaked. I quickly wondered if it had turned yellow. My ears were ringing and burning. I could hear that bloody alarm that used to live under my bed. I looked down and gasped when I saw this huge, dark shape on the carpet growing and spreading underneath my feet. The girls on either side of me must have heard because they both looked down, saw the mess and then stared at me in disbelief. What do I do? What do I say? What will they think? Are they going to tell people? I stayed perfectly still until I knew I could escape. The concert ended and I raced to the bathroom, panicking, crying and trying to clean myself up. The worst part was sitting alone, waiting half an hour in soaked and smelly underwear, shoes and socks for my parents to pick me up. That was Marie Kelly reading If Peeing My Pants Was an Olympic Sport, an excerpt from her book The Tales of Teenage Turbulence and Other Terrible Times. And isn't that just such a hard piece to listen to? Wow, it really must have been a terrible time. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible time. But, you know, we've all been there, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you some stories. <laughs> Um, up next, we have a piece that um, we have also read before, um, a by a submitter, Tor Lusout. Um And Tor was, if you remember her story, she was actually working in a bank for over 50-plus years, 15-plus years, sorry, <laughs> um, after completing her business degree and then changed her career path and enrolled in the Bachelor of Writing. I love so, that story. Yeah, it's just, I, that makes me so happy. So <laughs> um, with that in mind, I'm going to read her piece to you now called Billions and Billions of Years Ago. Billions and billions of years ago, a squirting slimy ooze slowly, oh so slowly, form takes place. A, protection co- a protective cover turns to skin A reaction to light turns to eyes. A reaction to vibration turn to the fine hairs in our ears. Limbs, fingers, opposable thumbs. Climb the tree to flee. Climb the tree for juicy fruits. Sticks and stones to kill, to cook, to feed. Our bodies now so different to the rest of the kingdom. So big, so tiny, so round. Outspout mouth, now on Oz or ums, a form of call, a form of thought, a form of sound. We used to talk, to work together, to fight, to teach, to believe. What great many movements we choose to teach. Contort, retort by way of violence, conform, reform by way of covering our bodies. And that was Billions and Billions of Years Ago by Tor Lasout. Um, who's also undergone a kind of evolution. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and turned to creative writing. Which, you know, we all love here, so yes. we celebrate that. Um, what's up next? So yeah. we're going to now hear from Madison Griffiths, who we were also lucky enough to interview and have record a piece of hers on Right Here, Right Now. This is a short piece of hers called Heights. We kissed by a river, where a plastic fork on the greasy shore was our only witness. And later, in the honey light of your bedroom, you asked me about my fears. Heights, I told you, like any new lover would. Heights, my darling, the escalators at Parliament Station, a needle 
bleached and ready to embellish my naked arm, the sort of fog that swallows up roads and sheep, distant, like tiny white boulders with tiny white legs, unseeingly stumbling into some farmer's backyard butchery, or worse, smog, cloudy human acid, proof that we are failing, open water, where sea skeletons bare their stony teeth hungry for toes, and the current, the way it curls and cries and guzzles, summoning plastic and flesh into its ocean garden. We collapse into cotton sheets, and what I do not tell you is that in five years it will be you, my darling. I will see a pink body lathered in morning sweat, yawning, and for a moment I will, I will mistake him for you and he will mistake me for a contour of a woman trembling in second-hand trousers. In the purple cosmos of my sleep, you spit, kick, curse, strike at it on me. Every day is a burial, my darling, deep seas. Lamb that weep and march, your thumbs lodged into my shoulders like meaty threats. Heights, my darling, how much I have grown. And that was Madison Griffiths with her piece Heights that we aired a few weeks ago during the season of Right Here, Right Now. Now I've only got time for a few more submissions this evening and this is a great piece that was sent through to us by Lara Meyer, a beautiful poem titled To Him. Hello, it's been a while. Years since I spoke back to you in the pastor aisle. Do you accept yet that you're an undeclared pedophile? That smirk you give, it shows you're so sure. You think I'm still hush, the thrill you get from feeling that secretive rush. But have you ever felt? Have you ever felt frightened? Frightened about losing my obedient hush? I'm strong enough. I'm giving that convenient silence the flush. I've had enough. Think twice about your confident wit. I'm giving your confidence in my silence the spit. What will you do? I no longer care. Anything is better than these days, all spent in silent despair. Words sound louder from a subdued soul. Up until now, you've done a great job turning my words into blackened out charcoal. I've done my time in pain, confusion. I've confided in shrinks about my apparent delusion. The root of the cause needs to be addressed. Hey, that's you. You've been hanging around. You might as well be my gym shoe. It's time for you to see the shrink. It's time for you to own your shit and think. Work through the pain you caused young girls like me. Put a final end to your filthy fantasy. Wow. Yeah. I just love that. So powerful. Yeah, that was a submission from Lara Maya that um, we love here right here, right now. So thank you so much for that, Lara. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who submitted to our show throughout the season. We really appreciated it. It was great to have... You know, the listener involvement, it really kept our show alive. Yeah, so true. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted. We've had so many great, varied pieces of work and we've felt really privileged to be able to read them out live on air for you. So thank you. Yes. Um, and so to end tonight, we're just going to um, leave you with Dylan Thomas reciting his poem, do not go gentle into that good night. Thanks again for having us this season and I'm sure you'll hear from us soon. Bye. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, Because their words had forked no lightning, They do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright, 
Their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Brave men near death who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land of the House of Sin and Studio Stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the land, our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. I do my makeup in somebody else's car We order different drinks at the same bars. <laughs> 